You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. Well, we are glad to have you back today for Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey. And we are currently in a series right now entitled Restoration, where we are looking at the important process of going back to the Bible to look at New Testament Christianity and what God originally intended for the church to be, not only in the first century, but still today in 2022. And in last episode, we spent a little bit of time just talking about how God is a God of order and how God has always just kind of laid out a pattern for his people to follow, regardless if it was in creation or the story of Noah, or even when we get into the New Testament, specifically in the book of 1 Corinthians, for how the church should be organized and for what worship should look like uh, with the saved. And uh, I'm having my dad, Danny Hawk, along with me for this conversation. And dad is back with us today. Dad, we are glad that you're here. Glad to be here. So we are going to spend a little bit of time today kind of just looking at the history of the restoration movement and how this concept of restoration really made its way to America. And we'll spend a few episodes kind of going through the history of the American Restoration Movement and some of the big players. Uh, We won't get to all of them today, but we'll at least begin the process. Uh, so, Dad, before we begin today, why don't we just go ahead and define, if people didn't listen to last episode, what is this concept of restoration all about? Well, you've already touched on it, Jacob, but in a sense, and to be very simplistic with it, the restoration movement was an effort to restore New Testament Christianity. It was a plea to be the church that we read about in the New Testament, and that's a plea that we still hold on today to today but restoration history the restoration movement basically uh, began in america right old 15 20 years after our independence 1776 and right around the turn of the century going into the 1800s that period of time between uh, 1776 and the signing of the founding documents when they were actually signed, that was pretty much the birth and the inception of the restoration movement in America. Okay, so the concept of restoration, as we talked about last week, is just getting back to the original plan. And again, people restore a lot of things in life, whether it be a car or a house or uh, some other type of project. Biblical restoration is getting back to what we originally see 
in Scripture. And, Dad, there's kind of a misnomer we're going to touch on here in just a second. But when uh, going back to the pilgrims, even before the days of the American Revolution, when the pilgrims left England and came to America, we often say that they were in search of religious freedom, uh, which they were. But when they arrived in America, as you've pointed out before, they really didn't have full religious freedom. Is that correct? That's correct. And as the restoration movement took root, like say in the late 1700s, early 1800s, though many had come to the New World, come to America looking, one of the things and one of the reasons they came and one of the things we always claim is that they came looking for religious freedom. Uh, Though that sounded good, that's not really what was taking place. In fact, a lot of times, and history will prove this, is when whatever people are running from, many times is what they become. And when they got to America, they came, number one, uh, the Restoration Movement did not begin in a religious vacuum. There were a lot of religious groups in colonial America. But when the settlers came to America, coming from, you know, particularly the ones coming from England, that came the church in England was uh, in a turmoil at the time, and they were running away from uh, the church-state situation over there. But when they got to America, nine of the original 13 colonies had state churches in them over here on this side of the water, which in other words, state church was, if you were gonna settle there and live there in their their particular colony, you were going to be required to go to the church, which they had selected as the state church. So state church was still very much um, driven by government standards and what they had known in England. Yes. Okay. Yes. And when they were coming over, they were saying they wanted to break free from that, but mainly they were wanting to break free from the Catholic Church. Is that correct? Well, yes, and we're going to go into that a little bit more because by that time, the Church of England had uh, a whole lot going on uh, and what was going on over there. Uh, During the Reformation period in the 1500s, the Catholic Church – over in England, uh, Henry VIII was king, and he got uh, in a fight and fussing match with, with the Pope over some personal issues he had. And it was a political move. Henry VIII decided that he would just take the authority away from the Pope, and he just started a new church, called it the Church of England. The Church of England, Henry VIII was still a Catholic but he really just wanted to uh, diminish the, the authority of the Pope. Well, that rocked along for a little while, and Henry VIII died, of course. He had no son, so his daughter, Elizabeth I, took over the reign of the, of the kingdom there. And there was a lot of turmoil going on because of the fussing between Henry VIII and the Catholic Church. What were the people to do? So Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth I, she had an idea that she would compromise, and she took on a compromise and instigated the compromise between Catholicism and Protestantism and came up with middle ground, which 
really was the birth of the Episcopalian Church. It's kind of what we would know as Episcopalianism today. Well, a lot of people didn't like that. They didn't like the taste in their mouths and that turned their stomachs about compromise. That was the word they didn't like. And they felt the Church of England, rather than compromise, uh, the Church of England should be purified. And their goal was to get rid of Catholicism. And this is where the Puritans were born. And we uh, talk about and hear a lot about in history the Puritans. Now, what did the Puritans do? They decided that they were going to establish the pure church in England. They'd go uh, try to do that. When that became a real, real tough thing to do, they decided we'll just go somewhere else. So they came to America, and uh, they were some of the uh, major settlers, religious settlers that came in. They came to America, and within 10 years of being in America, they had thousands of members. And the Puritans, the, the, their church, they called it the Congregationalist Church, was the founded, or the church, um, what I'm trying to say, the state church in three of the colonies until after the 1800s. Okay, so help us understand here. The state church then is not Catholicism. And the state church is not the Church of England. The state church is this new church. Congregationalist. Congregationalist. In those three colonies, at least. Okay. In those three colonies. So most of the state churches were Congregationalist? Or no. Were they? No, just in these three colonies where the Puritans came, primarily in the New England states. Okay. Now, again, they came to the New World because they weren't free to worship as they wanted to in England. But it was not really for religious freedom. When they got here, they required everyone to attend a Puritan church. Now, I'm going to talk about that when I say just in the three colonies. We're going to get to it here in a minute. But the Church of England, a lot of folks stayed with the Church of England, and they came to America, too. And they settled mainly in the southern colonies. And the Church of England would be the state church in six of the southern colonies. Okay, so you've got three Congregationalists and three Church of England state churches that it was expected for the people to be part of these churches. Three and six. Three so and six. nine of the original 13 right. were state churches. Okay, so again, getting circling back to this, they say they're coming for religious freedom, but in nine of the 13 colonies, they really don't have religious freedom. If you're in the north, you're expected to be a Congregationalist. If you're in the southern part, you're expected to be part of the Church of England. Yes, sir. Okay. To give you an example of where there was no religious freedom, 1856 is a good example of it. There were two ladies, two women, Mary Fisher and Anne Austin, and they came to Boston, arrived in Boston. They were Quakers, and when the people in Boston figured out that some Quakers had arrived, Mary Fisher and Austin, they were both locked up, stripped. The windows where they had locked them up were boarded up. And the captain of the ship that had brought them into Boston was given the, the, the command that they were to go out on the same boat that came in on. And a law was passed in Massachusetts that no Quakers could come in. If they ever did, they would be executed. So that's just one example, Jacob, of the so-called religious freedom that people were coming to America for. 
Well, why don't you help us understand? We're doing this a little bit already, but but let's go back to 1776 when the Declaration is signed and America declares to be free from England. What are the largest religious groups in America in 1776? Okay, the first one would be the Congregationalist, which this is the group, uh, the, the Puritans. They, they wanted to purify the Church of England. The second largest group would be the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians now were scattered throughout all of the colonies, particularly the middle colonies. Remember, the we've got the Puritans in the north, and we're going to talk about the Church of England in the south here in a second. Uh, but the Presbyterians, they were scattered everywhere, but mainly in the middle colonies. Theologically, they believed almost identically as the Puritans, the Congregationalists. Now, when I say this, I'm talking about where these groups were in the 1776 to 1800. You know, I'm not saying that these uh, religious groups have not changed some of their thinking through the years. I'm just talking about the Restoration period here. But at that time, they were very close to the Congregationalists. And if you put the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists together, you'd have about one-third of the religious people in America during the 1800s. So those were the two largest groups. The next largest group would be the Baptist. Roger Williams was the first Baptist founder that's on record that we can find, at least historically. What did he believe? Roger Williams believed almost the same thing as the Congregationalists or the Puritans and the Presbyterians except a couple of things he was very strong in. Number one, he believed that the states did not have the right to conform or to compel religious uniformity. In other words, he didn't like state churches. Number two, Roger Williams believed that all of the land in the New World belonged to the Indians, and if the white man wanted any of it, he ought to make a treaty with the Indians and buy the land from the Indians. He was so unpopular, his thinking was so unpopular that uh, there were efforts made to deport him, get him out of the new world. He escaped. They actually had him locked up. He escaped. He lived with the Indians. He wrote a dictionary of the Indian language, which is still preserved today. And uh, many say is one of the best uh, English to Indian uh, dictionaries that was ever written. He bought some land. He was true to what his principles were and what he had been preaching. He went and bought some land from the Indians. He bought Providence, Rhode Island, and he began baptizing people in Providence, Rhode Island. He founded the first Baptist church of Rhode Island where anyone at any time from anywhere could come and live. There was no other spot in the Western world with that kind of religious freedom. And that came from Roger Williams, uh, the leader of the Baptist church at that time. So you had the Congregationalists, you had the Presbyterians, you had the Baptist. The next largest group would be the Church of England, which they had taken on the name Anglican by this time. Uh, they were located mainly in the southern colonies. The Anglican Church was settled by businessmen, for the most part, who came from the, the England to the New World, 
They came and they brought the old church with them. The king and queen of England were the heads of the church. The Anglican church was weak spiritually, but it was very strong financially because of these businessmen in the South. And as we've already said, it became the state church, or some would say the established church, in all six of the southern colonies until after the Revolution. So in New England, Jacob, you had the Congregationalists, or the Puritans, the southern colonies, you had Church of England, or the Anglicans, the middle colonies, you had great diversity. And the middle colonies actually became the pattern for colonial America. You had a lot of different ideas and a lot of different groups. Okay, so in 1776, uh, the religious landscape in America looks very, it looked very different than it does today. Now, uh, the Baptist religious group are still very large today, but at least here in Texas, Episcopalians, um, not a very large religious group. So what changes then from the late 1700s to the mid-1800s to where we are today? Who are some of the big players? Well, the first thing that took place uh, as we before we move into the big players of the Restoration Movement, one of the things that really changed the course of religious thinking in America was what's referred to as the Great Awakening of the 1730s and 1740s. And during this period of time, which was actually before the, the, our founding documents mm-hmm. were signed, the, but period of, for a few decades there, there was a lot of preaching taking place. Like any time in any place of, in history, the church and the religious uh, excitement, interest, always uh, follows great preaching. Mm-hmm. And that's what always moves the mark more than anything else. And there were some great preachers during that time, some great orators. One of them's name was Joseph, I'm sorry, Jonathan Edwards. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Edwards was a great philosopher, but he was also a, a preacher. And he's most, uh, most remembered for the sermon he preached entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was a very dramatic sermon. It was a, what we would call a hellfire damnation sermon uh, where God would dangle sinners over the fire, flaming fires of hell. And that's what he's remembered for, which is kind of a shame, because though he did uh, preach uh, that style uh, a good bit of the time, most of his sermons that you'll find, really he he stresses the the importance of of grace and mercy and uh, the love of God. But he's remembered for that one sermon. Another preacher was named George Whitfield. Uh, George Whitfield, it's amazing. You know, we have so we, we get frustrated today when a sound system doesn't work accurately. These these guys preached outdoors, Jacob. Uh, with no PA system, no microphones, no speakers of any kind. Did they have PowerPoint? Didn't have PowerPoint. Hmm. George Whitfield is said, and the one who actually records this is Benjamin Franklin. 
Benjamin Franklin attended one of his uh, preaching services one time in the 1730s, 40s, somewhere in there, and Franklin would move around in the crowd, and he would estimate how many people were standing in a 10-foot square, and he would calculate it while the sermon was going on, and he said that George Whitfield spoke that night to 30,000 people in the outdoors. I just, I don't know how that could happen, but that's what Benjamin Franklin recorded. And Whitfield was a great uh, orator as well. In fact, the thing that's written about him that's quoted most often is that uh, it's said of Whitfield that he could move a crowd to tears by the way he said Mesopotamia. <laughs> now, I don't know what would do that, but that's, that's what he's remembered for. Mesopotamia. But this is what the climate and the culture, Jacob, that moved it, or the Restoration Movement, was the birth of the Restoration Movement. Okay, so how do we keep moving then? I know there's a, another gentleman that you want to mention here. Let's, let's keep talking about him. Well, you're talking about James O'Kelly? James O'Kelly, yes, sir. What I want to mention and try to tie together in the times that we have left in these uh, series that we're going through is as the Restoration Movement, as we know it, took root and got started, there were actually four independent movements that began in a 20-year period, all claiming, let's go back to the Bible. Let's move back to Scripture. Before you go any further, where are they coming from when they say, let's go back to the Bible? Well, one's coming out of the uh, Methodist church. Okay. Uh, one's coming out of the Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Two of them are coming out of the Presbyterian church. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this, they are all independent of each other. They do not even have knowledge that the other exists. In late 1700s, early 1800s, there is no television, no radio, no telephone, no Internet, no Facebook, no Twitter. So there's no way that they know uh, the other people even exist or the other three Uh, are even alive and it's very interesting to me that they all during a 20-year period really say basically the same thing have the same ideas though they come at it from a little bit different approach sometimes they're all pretty much on the same page of let's go back to the Bible. But there are four independent movements. Okay, I want to hit that one more time, and I'm not trying to chap you here at these questions, but for someone listening, you're not saying, and history's not saying, that these groups coming out of the Methodist Church, Baptist Church, and two out of the Presbyterian Church, that those churches aren't teaching the Bible at the time. That's not what you're saying. You're just saying that when they say we need to go back to the Bible— they're still using the Bible, but what do they mean by saying we need to go back to back to the Bible if they're using it already? There were things that gave them heartburn. For example, really and truly, three major things, if you look at it, uh, throughout the, the four groups, but they, the similarities that they had. First of all, they really, really uh, were concerned about what they referred to as man-made or man-written creeds, mm-hmm. confessions of faith, uh, anything that was being held in honor or preached uh, that didn't come from Scripture. They they wanted 
uh, thus saith the Lord, chapter and verse. Let's go back to the Bible. And that it really pained them to see and to hear uh, sermons and statements and confessions of faith that they did not feel come from Scripture. Second thing that they did, they really opposed was uh, an official clergy, clergy uh, versus laity. They, they may not have said it this way, may not have said it originally the way Paul did, but they talked. They, they certainly believed that uh, we were we were a priesthood of believers, <coughs> and they felt like that anyone should be able to preach. Anyone should should be able to uh, get up and uh, uphold the Bible. So they didn't like the official clergy. And then the the third thing they were uh, getting away from was what they would refer to as unscriptural organizations. They didn't like the synods. They didn't like the conferences. They didn't like the the, uh, conventions. They didn't like uh, unscriptural organizations. They felt like uh, the church, the New Testament was clear that the church was organized for congregations to be autonomous, we'd say today, and under uh, the direct uh, uh, control of Jesus, God, and the Bible, and that there should not be a human organization that was controlling or governing the church. So for the most part, unscriptional uh, statements, confessions of faith, clergy, and unscriptural organizations. Those were the things they didn't like. And is it fair to say unscriptural by this definition is not just a prohibition, in other words, of black and white, you cannot do this, but it's also they would define unscriptural as in addition to what the Bible may not Not in the Bible. Okay. Unscriptural was not in the Bible. So when they say we need to get back to the Bible, they're not saying we haven't been using the Bible before. What they're saying is is – what gives us heartburn is looking at the Bible and then in addition to Bible, all of these man-made rules that have become equally as authoritative as the Bible. We talked last week, if folks heard our, our time together last week, about pattern and blueprint. Mm-hmm. They truly saw the New Testament as the pattern or the blueprint for the church today. Now, these four movements, if I can go on with that, mm-hmm. the first one would be uh, James O'Kelly. Second one was referred to as the New England movement. Third one is the Stone movement. The fourth one is the Campbell movement. James O'Kelly. James O'Kelly was a North Carolina farmer, and uh, he was good at farming, but he was also very interested in the Bible and in preaching, and he became what he referred to as a lay preacher. In other words, he was not an ordained minister but he was a lay preacher in the methodist church during the revolutionary war uh the the methodist church during this time in the new world was in its infancy infancy i'll get it here in a minute it was new to the new world and it was still a society uh, among and within the anglican church the first methodist appeared in america in 1760 In 1771, John Wesley from England sent Francis Asbury to America as his general assistant. 
Well, Wesley, back in England, he never severed his ties with England. But when the American colonies won the war, the Revolutionary War, and gained the independence, uh, John Wesley realized things are never going to be the same. They'll be different. So he wrote a letter to uh, his followers in America suggesting that they sever their ties with the Church of England and they form an independent church. Well, James O'Kelly was a part of this. But uh, he had some problems with it as it started going. Here's what Wesley wrote, though. I think this is important. John Wesley wrote over to America and telling the Methodists who were here in America, said, you are no longer tied to the Church of England. Form a new church with biblical standards. Biblical standards. And I'm going to highlight some uh, things as as some of these uh, documents are written that point to a restoration plea. And there's one of them right there. Form a new church with biblical standards. So they did, and they formed what they referred to as the Methodist Episcopal Church. And it was organized at the famous Christmas Conference, 1784. Francis Asbury was elected as superintendent or bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Well, James O'Kelly was present at this Christmas conference, but he later charged that the church was organized of ministers, by ministers, and for ministers with Francis Asbury at its head. He was critical of it. By the way, this charge of of, by, and for, he wrote that several years before our founding documents were written. So, Perhaps he may have influenced some of the writing on that. For government. For the government. Yeah, for the people, by the people. Yes, for the government. Well, even though he had struggles with it, he accepted an appointment from this Christmas conference as a presiding elder for the southern Virginia area, and he served until 1792. He had 28 preachers under his supervision, but he... Uh, continued to oppose what he considered Asbury's autocratic rule, and he urged more of a democratic government for the church. Well, O'Kelly and Asbury, they have conflict, and they struggle, and everybody knows it uh, within that movement. And it finally comes to a climax in 1792, their general council in, in Baltimore. There's a long, bitter debate and after the debate, they said we're going to have to decide whether we're going to follow Asbury's thinking or O'Kelly's thinking. And the conference voted to support Francis Asbury. Well, the very next day, the conference received a letter from James O'Kelly announcing his withdrawal from the church. O'Kelly and his supporters met at Piney Grove, Virginia in August 1793, and they drafted a resolution which called on Asbury to call a meeting that would form a permanent plan for peace and union. Listen to this in their writing. A permanent plan for peace and union, taking the holy scriptures for our only guide. There's your restoration thought again. Well, Asbury refused, so the O'Kelly group had no choice but to organize a new church. So on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1793, they met and they formed a new church and they called it the Republican Methodist Church. Hmm. 
Well, several of the Methodist preachers joined in organizing the new church. Within a short period of time, they had a thousand members. In 1794, a year later, the new church agreed that the scriptural plan of church government was, and here you go, that was to ordain elders over each church. In other words, moving away from uh, the ecclesiastical setup uh, that Asbury had. So they said, we got to get away from that, and let's put elders over each church. Well, as they're moving back to the Bible, if you please, someone in the meeting said, if we're going to follow the Bible as our guide, where do you find the name Methodist or Republican in the Bible? Or Democrat, I guess. Or Democratic either. <laughs> well, they said that's a pretty good point. So very quickly, they agreed to drop the name Republican Methodist. And they said, what are we going to do now? There was a man by the name of Rice Haggard. And you need to remember Rice Haggard, Jacob, because he's going to pop up quite a few times through this restoration uh, movement. Mm -hmm. But Rice Haggard was present. And he said, how about Christian? He said, this name was given by divine authority in Scripture. And I suggest we wear it to the exclusion of all others. Now, go through all this because this is the first group in America known as Christians, simply as Christians. That sounds like the statement in Acts about Antioch. It's the first right. group in America known simply as Christians. That's right. And Rice Haggard is quoting that, that verse when he uh -huh. suggests this. They're the first group to be known as Christians. By 1809, they have a membership of 20,000 members. They're growing. Mm-hmm. Their basic beliefs were this. Number one, the lordship of Christ is the only head of the church. Number two, the name Christian to the exclusion of all others. And number three, the Bible, they said, will be our only creed, our only rule of faith and practice. And so that was uh, the starting of James O'Kelly and, and his movement. James O'Kelly was very interesting, just kind of as a point of interest. He was a friend of Thomas Jefferson, and he actually was asked to preach before the Continental Congress on several uh, instances, several occasions. But that's, in a nutshell, a lot more we go into, but that's mm -hmm. kind of a, a overall glimpse of the O'Kelly movement. So as a review here, I know we've talked about a lot of history today, but as the church is beginning to take form in America, there's a movement to go back to the Bible, and there's four different groups or movements that are actively pursuing this unbeknownst to each other. That's right. And the one we talked about today is what's been deemed the O'Kelly movement uh, in honor of James O'Kelly, who had Methodist ties. If we've got a few more minutes, I want to talk about the second one. All right, let's go ahead and talk quickly. about the New England movement. Okay, the New England movement, as we called it, uh, it's it's obviously, the from the name, it's beginning and appearing up in New England. There's Christian churches are appearing up there as well, though they start down uh, with O'Kelly in the North Carolina area. Uh, they're making their way north, and when they come up uh, to the northern area, uh, they are noticed by uh, the preachers there. The O'Kelly movement 
came out of the Methodist Church. And the issue, as we talked about, Jacob, was church government. Mm -hmm. There were other issues, but that was the biggest issue, church government. The New England Christians were Baptist in background, and their issue and their concern and the reason they want to do something different was doctrinal. It wasn't the government. It's doctrinal, and it was Calvinism. They really uh, were struggling with the, the theology of, of John Calvin. The New England movement had two prominent Baptist preachers, uh, real tough names, Smith and Jones. You had Elias Smith, Abner Jones. Elias Smith was dissatisfied with Calvinism, and he came to believe that all theological systems were wrong. He believed that Christians, and here you go, Christians should be guided only by Scripture. Abner Jones was influenced by Elias Smith's teachings, and he organized an independent Christian church at London, Vermont in 1801. Six years later, there were 14 churches, 12 members, I'm sorry, 14 churches and 12 ministers in his new movement, the new church. Elias Smith then did a similar thing, and he formed a church in New Hampshire, and he referred to the church as the Church of Christ. First instance, first uh, note that we find recorded in colonial history of a church that uh, refers to themselves as Church of Christ. But that was Elias Smith uh, up in New England. And uh, one of his buildings, I understand, is still standing and has a cornerstone on it that uh, has embedded in it, engraved in it, the Church of Christ. But in this New England movement, Elias Smith began publishing the nation's first religious newspaper of any group of any kind. First religious newspaper in America in 1808 was called the Herald of Gospel Liberty. Now remember, no television, no radio, no uh, social media. So these uh, religious papers that were mailed out, they become a very, very important tool in colonial America and early America in influencing and teaching people. But in his early issues of the Herald of Gospel Liberty, he revealed how the New England Christians and those in the South had developed a sense of fellowship with one another. So this is how we know they kind of get together. An example, May 27th, 1809, several Christian ministers from Virginia and the Carolinas sent greetings to the brethren in New England. They rejoiced to know that the New England Christians accepted as they did, the same things they did, and they listed three things. The headship of Christ over the church, Number two, the New Testament as the only rule of faith. And number three, the name Christian. Well, the New Englanders, in turn, uh, returned the greeting. Two years later, Elias Smith attended a conference of Christian preachers in the South, and Smith was given the right hand of fellowship by James O'Kelly. So these two churches are aware of one another now. These two movements are aware of one another and the church which resulted from these two early efforts at restoration became or became uh, known as the Christian Connection. And really and truly, 
it rem- they remained separate from the Stone and Campbell movements, but they were very influential in uh, the, this period of time in America in an idea of let's go back to New Testament Christianity. Uh, why is all this important? Well, just for that reason, I think uh, as we continue looking at the Restoration Movement, we observe that these pioneer preachers, they helped set the tables, set the tone for it. And one of the things that I would encourage all of us, the listeners and everybody to remember is these men, these preachers were coming out of uh, different denominational settings that they had been in their entire lives. And when you do that, you don't just move from point A to point B in one jump. But it's a gradual thing of rethinking, restudying uh, things that you may have always believed. You, you study them again as things pop up. And so they don't just move immediately, but it's a gradual process. And some of their efforts and some of their conclusions we may disagree with, <coughs> but we can learn from their discoveries as well as their mistakes. But there were four movements, as I said, that began in a 20-year period to go back to the Bible. They're independent of each other, don't know the other, even exist. I have no knowledge of the other. And I just think it's a very interesting thing. Those are the first two movements. They really have less to do with where we are today than the last of the Stone Movement and the Campbell Movement. We'll spend more time with them. Well, let me give a very brief recap, because that is a tremendous amount of information. Obviously, you've put a lot of work into this and have a great uh, reservoir of understanding of history. But what we've talked about today is there's a common misconception when pilgrims come to America seeking religious freedom for the first several decades they're here, even arguably the first century that they're here. There's not a whole lot of religious freedom because state churches continue to govern the area some of them looking familiar to what it would look like back in England, others who had broken away from the Church of England and kind of formed more of an Episcopalian mindset. But as time goes on, there are four movements that surface unbeknownst to each other. Some come out of a Methodist background, some come out of a Baptist background, one comes out of a Presbyterian background. But they all have this idea and this passion to uh, get back to the Bible. And today we've looked at two of those movements, the James James O'Kelly, O'Kelly and the New England movement, England. which was Smith and Jones. Have I represented that in a nutshell correctly? Yes, you have. And the thing that I think we really need to uh, throw out there for us to remember as we continue going through this is what I said, that you these men didn't move in one jump from where they were to where they wound up. But they had to analyze and rethink things as subjects would pop up and as situations would arise. But the common thread, the common ground in all four movements was that they very soon, very quickly realized the way to make the decisions of whether to move, whether to stand where they are, what they need to do. Very quickly, they realized that the acid test was can we give a chapter, a verse, a thus saith the Lord, to what we're trying to do? And if they couldn't, they said we need to walk away from that. If they could, they'd hold on to it. 
if in study they realized there's something as of what the Bible is saying is totally different from what we even thought about as we started studying, they moved to that. They were very sincere. They were very genuine. And let's be sure that we follow the pattern, follow the blueprint, and that we try our very best to be the church that we read about in the New Testament. And that's the whole concept of restoration. That's the concept. You can't get back to the beginning if you don't look for the instructions of what the beginning originally looked like. Exactly. And so we will continue to uh, discuss the restoration movement, specifically in America. Next time we'll start talking about maybe a few more common names. Uh, But we are glad that you have joined us. And if you are going to continue to travel along with us in this journey, we are looking at the importance of New Testament uh, restoration. I hope you have a great day. And as always, I encourage you to keep your eyes on heaven. And we look forward to talking with you 